When you head out to a restaurant, and whether or not you're looking for it, beef is a common item you're going to find. Burgers make up an enormous part when we think about how many fast food companies center around burgers, let alone all the grills, pubs, kitchen and bars, roadhouses, and the list goes on that might put a whole page to ground beef between a bun. But once you get past that demand for ground beef, plus some steaks, maybe a slice of beef off a roast, and pretty soon you get to the end of what most people in North America have been comfortable eating. You know, more of the edgy chefs out there uh, using those tendons and tripes and beef belly, like the short plate. There's a digital muscle in in around the the, the lower shank that is uh, very popular also. And so at the Centre of Excellence, we show Canadian chefs how to how to work with them uh, from learnings that we get from overseas markets. I'm Andrew Campbell, and this is Food Bubble, where today's question is, what do you do with all the beef that isn't as popular as what we're used to? As Matthew said, the tendons or the belly, the marrow or the bone, it isn't wasted. That doesn't do anyone any good. So where does it go? What do you use it for? And how is it growing in popularity here at home and around the world? It's all about making sure nothing is wasted, and we get underway right after this. Knowing you've chosen the best insurance company to protect your business should not be complicated. If you have a farm, you need a farm insurance expert. Trillium Mutual's Real Ontario Farm Insurance Brokers understand the unique needs of your farm operation. Trust them to provide you with the best coverage across Ontario. To find a Real Ontario Farm Insurance Broker near you, visit TrilliumMutual.com and follow them on Facebook and Twitter at Trillium Mutual for tips on how to protect what matters most to you. In Canada, and a lot of other first world countries, each farmer spends money supporting organizations meant to lobby and promote whatever they happen to be raising. When it comes to beef, what's known as a checkoff, a small amount of money for every animal sold to market, goes to a farmer-run group to work on behalf of all beef farmers. Part of that goes to a group known as the Canadian Beef Centre of Excellence, where Matthew Perry heads up developing emerging markets with their facility. facility built and, uh, and supported by Canada Beef. So serving Canadian beef producers uh, or, or representing their product in the marketplace, uh, we have a facility that, that showcases the attributes of the product, the, the great story about Canadian beef, and we share that story with um, with essentially all downstream uh, users of the product or stakeholders of the product, uh, let's say all the way down to the consumer, uh, the the food service customer, uh, so in restaurants, those, those restaurant goers, um, and then all the way up the value chain through those food service distributors, uh, the retailers, uh, the the packers, the processors, the the further processors that are that are adding value to those Canadian beef products. And, and we work with all of those stakeholder groups to uh, in, encourage appreciation and increase value for Canadian beef. Uh, the other aspect uh, that I look after, which is business development in emerging markets. And so those would be, uh, I guess, markets that are just uh, a less of a focal point in terms of, of uh, uh, our Canadian beef business overseas. Um, but 
that are uh, usually quite high value markets. So they, they serve a little bit more uh, as niche. And, um, and so those would be Middle East and North Africa. Part of it, as mentioned earlier, comes from the sustainability side in making sure that just because we eat a lot of ground beef and sirloin steaks doesn't mean the rest gets thrown away. Every part of the carcass has a value. And, and so if we start looking, you know, outside of those premium cuts and, and also, you know, even in fact, better utilization of those premium cuts, there's, there's more pressure every day on, on this planet or our earth to be able to supply high quality, safe food. And, and as chefs and cooks and, and, and inspiring also consumers at home to make better use of the, the food that we have in front of us when we're preparing it for our families or for our, our restaurant guests. So, so a, a, an increased consciousness of, of the value of this high-quality Canadian food product is, is essential for everybody. And it, and it actually, um, that appreciation helps to increase the value of the product. And for instance, at the, at the Center of Excellence, where we, uh, we continuously work on innovations to, to bring more value to what would otherwise have been a, a very low value trim, or even, um, and now we're focusing a lot on using um, fat, for instance. So beef fat, uh, you know, in, in years past, a chef receives an order of, 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 of beef. They process it for their for their service, um, and a, and one of the trim components of that process is fat. And they, there's not until recently been very much appreciation or value placed on some of that fat, and it just would be a, a zero value waste. And but that 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 fat has a ton of potential in food service operations and. And, it, and so what we're doing at the Center of Excellence right now is showing our partners in food service, restaurateurs and chefs and uh, the operators there, like how they can use that trim fat um, that would be a part of, of, of what they're receiving, because to a certain degree, there's always going to be a little bit of fat in, in their, you know, in the specification um, and creating really interesting desserts. For example, we incorporate uh, fat and, and build recipes where beef fat can be an alternative um, fat source for preparing cookies and cakes. Uh, we incorporate different kinds of fat into, uh, like for instance, bone marrow fat. Uh, we're building that fat into desserts like uh, creme brulee. In terms of those cuts of beef that are harder to find a home for, Matthew, how do you go after moving them into some of the emerging markets that you come across? We see uh, the buyers, the distributors, uh, so the importers, the, the, the distributor buyers, the, their customers, including uh, the retailers, the food service operators, and their chefs. And so we bring them, or they actually, uh, you know, come to us, to the, the Center of Excellence, to Canada. Uh, we explore with them, start to finish the, the industry. And then at the center, uh, we promote a lot of the, the cuts, the lesser utilized uh, here in the market. Uh, and 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 showcase opportunities with them. I would say we also learn quite a bit from them because they they show us applications or they or we you know discuss applications that they are using those products in in those markets. So, I mean, in in Vietnam, for instance, they have a they have a a, a lot of interest in using the offals that we don't use so much here in Canada. Um, you know, working with tripe, working with tendon, uh, working with 
um, in in China they have a, they use the omasum, uh, unusual cut here that is much less popular, a part of a um, the, the stomach. And so uh, we we help to explore those. I would say in terms of uh, where we work most to build demand for uh, less utilized cuts, um, we actually do more of that in Canada to 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 showcase the potential of those cuts that other markets around the world are using and enjoying. And and we help Canadian businesses differentiate themselves by by finding new opportunities with those cuts. That's an interesting one because I've heard over the years a lot about moving that product to international markets, to markets where people who want it. So why turn around and focus that now here in Canada? Well, I, the, the, the nearest, most accessible market for Canadian beef uh, has always been and will uh, continue to be Canada. Uh, so can, we want Canadian consumers and the uh, demand for Canadian beef to really be strongest here in Canada first, if possible. And so that all more of those those cuts that have been traditionally uh, exported to other countries where they have appreciation for it, if we can build demand for those cuts here and show Canadian chefs opportunities and potentials with them and show them that they are palatable and that they add interest to menus and, and show the creativity of the chefs and also a I guess, a, a world uh, view on culinary and, and, and influences and, and the, that creativity that comes from uh, some of these ideas, then, uh, then we're, in fact, increasing the value of that product um, and, and, you know, putting a little bit more pressure on, on the, the, that export market uh, to also be willing to pay more for those cuts. So it's, we're not just, you know, kind of unloading these these products to, to faraway lands because they have demand there and not here, uh, we can increase the value here at home in Canada and, uh, and into the United States as well. Okay, Canada's great, but obviously there are huge markets around the world. When we think about potential, where do you and your team have your eye on as places that really could be a bright spot for growth of beef? Yeah, I would say... Uh, United Arab Emirates is, is very strong and, and continues to be strong in terms of uh, in terms of uh, high quality luxury uh, type product. Um, you know, here again we see some some issues in in trade relationships, uh, and so the the Saudi um, the Saudi market, the KSA uh, Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, has recently you know there's been some some trade uh, tension between between Canada and, and, and Saudi. So that market has been uh, significantly impacted by those, those relationships, governmental relationships. Um, and so, you know, now we see, of, of course, through CETA and, and the opportunities um, in trade with the European Union, um, there is increased quotas uh, made available for premium quality beef coming from Canada into, into the EU. And the, some of the challenges there, though, are the, uh, very strict uh, requirements that the EU places in in terms of the production systems that we have here in Canada, and so so it will take some time for our our producers and our and our processors to to align with the with the, those requirements. Uh, but as we see more and more of them becoming in alignment, uh, the access to that marketplace uh, will continue to grow and. And the the demand or the um, uh, the size of the market and their uh, interest in high quality and, and premium products 
uh, in Europe is it's just it's huge and, and relatively still untapped, I guess, for us. But back to Canada, and even stretching that to North America, since the world of beef between Canada, the U.S., and Mexico is one of the most integrated, the most traded products back and forth of almost anything. For that, we've got to go to... Dwayne Ellard, the Executive Director for Business Development and Marketing for Canada Beef, and I oversee business development relations here in Canada and the marketing of Canadian beef. We've got a lot of ground beef, steaks, some roasts. What percentage, Duane, makes up the easy stuff to sell here in North America? That's a good question. Um, so if we take the animal and we, we sort of break it down into different parts, and approximately 25% of the carcass represents middle meats, the sirloins, the strip loins, the prime ribs, um, uh, tenderloin, short loins, and these types of products. Approximately 25% of the pro of the uh, of the animal represent hip cuts. So those would be um, roasting types of items: eye of the round, outside flats, uh, inside flats, sirloin tip, and then another 25% of the animal uh, represents um, cuts from the chuck, so your blades and your cross ribs, and, and quite a bit of trim as well from, from the chuck also. So that's about 75% of the, of the carcass, and so there's 25% of the products that we're really not familiar with, and good examples of those types of products would be brisket, plate, and that's sort of around the belly area. Also shank meat, and it's interesting, back in the day, and this is going back to the 80s, in Canada, uh, when I was um, um, a, a butcher, uh, the shank product was generally uh, for grinds. Well, um, with my 13 years at Canada Beef, starting in 2006, what we're learning, or what I have learned, is that um, many different ethnic cuisines are suitable for these traditional tougher pieces of meat. A shank, for example, is a, a very um, sinewy piece of meat, um, as that leg is working and moving, and the calves, and it's carrying quite a bit of weight. Um, however, through proper cooking methods, it's a wonderfully... Um, a wonderful flavor profile that is nothing like I had ever experienced before. So then maybe let's back up in terms of that ethnic influence. And you can throw out a number, whether that be 10, 20, 30 years. How has that ethnic growth in different parts of North America changed how you go about marketing beef here at home? Quite, quite significantly. Because there is a marketplace somewhere in the world or an ethnic group that sees value in all cuts of beef. I often say um, if you're looking for a valued cut, or a, um, and I don't like to use the word, but a, a cheaper cut, in the Canadian carcass, on the Canadian carcass, there really is no uh, cheaper cut of beef somewhere in the world sees value. Um, and an example of that would be uh, beef tendons. Now here in North America, 
growing up in rural Saskatchewan, I can tell you that my mother never cooked a, um, a beef ten tendon in her life. Uh, and would have no idea what to do with a, a beef tendon. Well, with the influence of, 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 of ethnic um, communities, um, as well as uh, export markets for Canadian beef, properly cooking the tendon in Asian, Asian cuisine and hot, pole bowl, and hot pot bowls uh, for broths makes a, a delicious um, addition. And as well as that tendon, um, almost jellifies and again provides a unique eating experience. Now over the last, well really a lot of the years, that move has always been to go to market the less popular cut somewhere in Asia. Are you finding that maybe there's more opportunity here at home than you originally thought? No question. Um, um, another example of a product is called finger meat. Finger meat is located in, when we remove the rib from a bone-in prime rib, we have back ribs. Well, those back ribs, if you, uh, in between the, the ribs, that, that meat in between is what we refer to as finger meat. It is a highly desired product in the Asia cuisine. Well, we're seeing now mainstream grocers, um, I'm seeing it even here in Western Canada, uh, for sure in, in Central Canada, in Ontario, Quebec, um, the product now on mainstream uh, North America style uh, grocery counters as well. How do you go about doing that then? We've talked about on this show before about the idea of being timid of trying new things and it just kind of being habit. How do you go about convincing a multi-generational Canadian or someone who hasn't tried one of these, either in a restaurant or hasn't tried to cook them at home, and then they do it well enough that they actually want to try it again? Rather than using a, a Canadian cut, and we'll use an inside round roast for an example, it is a utility uh, cut, sliced thin for stir fries, for rouladins and different types of, of products. Well. For stir-fry, it's not a product to be used for stir-fry. There's more traditional products that, um, that the uh, Asia cuisine will, will utilize. And so setting consumers up for that experience with traditional cuts for traditional um, cooking methods is, a, is, from our perspective, is a wonderful opportunity uh, for consumers to, for those consumers, who want to experience, who may have experienced those cultural dishes in, in country and wanting to recreate them here in Canada. Now that focuses a lot on the meat side, Duane. Uh, look at other things that aren't necessarily human consumption, bone for instance, different perspectives that aren't always edible. Those aren't getting thrown into a landfill. There are other uses, aren't there? You can imagine, and, and culinary is as uh, has a, a longevity as human nature has and 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 for the most part cooking methods from different countries and ethnic groups can be traced back not only generations but millennia and so um food was not wasted um kind of getting to your point here and so uh, with regards to some of these products, such as uh, you mentioned uh, beef bones, 
for example. Um, whether it be through um, uh, further cooking operations who are making beef broths uh, or um, extracting uh, the bone marrow for different types of cuisine, uh, there is a customer base and a, uh, a food provider who uh, requires these types of products. Uh, beef tripe uh, is another example. So beef tripe is, uh, as you may um, know, a, a bovine, in, this, in our case, um, a beef animal has four uh, stomachs, and each stomach has a different, um, a different function. And within those stomachs, the linings are different as well. So there are different values placed upon those stomachs. Um, generically, they're called beef tripe, but within those beef tripes, there are different values. And so um, somewhere globally, um, there is a, a, um, a requirement for these types of products that here in, in, in Canada, um, we, we really um, would, would have no, uh, have very, very little um, thought process to, to consider these types of cuts or products. What do you do with that? How do you prepare a cow stomach into a culinary experience that somebody actually wants to enjoy? Generally speaking, it'll follow that um, that that traditional um, authenticity of the of the product. But what we're also seeing as well is, and you're very familiar with fusion. And so, uh, a beef tripe, for example. Uh, the product is uh, is cleaned, of course, at the um, at the manufacturer, and then through the process, primarily of of, of boiling and cooking for an extended period of time, um, offers that item not only the the uh, the liquid that it's being boiled in a, a unique flavor profile, but also offers a unique uh, flavor profile to the product. And so we're seeing it, of course, here in North America and Canada uh, for, for traditional um, Asian type of, of, um, of cooking methods. But we're also seeing the product now being um, utilized. When I say mainstream, everywhere here in Canada, in most cities and large centers, there are three or four restaurants that are, are local and are creative and these restaurants find great joy in um, in being offered these types of products and sitting and they then look at well how do i um, uh, put my unique spin on this on the on a traditional culinary dish it is amazing to see how this world's evolved. You talk about your mother, what she did and didn't cook with, and see what people will do and try and see the flavors put together. And it must be a great time to be in marketing of that animal when there's so much creativity into food. It really is. It's um, where we're, we've folded into the last number of years into the entertainment category as well. And so that's not lost on us. Um, food is fuel for the body. We require food for fuel, but we also, it's also a point of entertainment as well. And so whether it's the tomahawk steak or uh, a unique 
cut uh, the petite tender or sirloin flap meat, uh, the bavette, um, our consumers are looking not only for uh, the primary uh, reason for, 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 for consumption of food, but the entertainment value as well, and, and, um, and also the adventure of, uh, of finding the product, of, of speaking to uh, the butcher or another influencer of some sort with knowledge, and then taking that home and recreating and sharing with a group of people. That food as entertainment does seem to be providing a whole new culinary world. Certainly, I remember their reluctance to spreading a little bone marrow on a whole cracker as an experience. Not just that I was hungry and needed something to eat, but that it was with friends, that we were enjoying a night out, that we wanted that experience. Just another evolution in how we think about food. Canadian consumers have lots of questions about their food. Don't let someone else tell your story for you. Farmfood360.ca is an award-winning online video project. Its mission is to help farmers, food processors, and others tell their own stories in their own words, and to be a trusted resource for consumers using high-quality video and 360-degree technology. Show the world the beauty of Canadian agriculture. Tell your story with farmfood360.ca. Visit www.farmfoodcareon.org for details. From nutrition to how it's grown, you have lots of questions about your food. Don't waste time online trying to find the best answers. Find food and farming information you can trust right now at bestfoodfacts.org. Bestfoodfacts.org connects you with leading university experts on food and farming in North America. A credible source found across all social channels, it features over 500 answered questions and new content every week. Your food and farming questions answered. Visit bestfoodfacts.org today. Next time on the Food Bubble Feed, we begin a new series that we'll occasionally run in which we focus on one person, one organization, making an impact in the world of food. It's Food Bubble's new Top of the Food Chain, and it's conversations with leaders in the world of food, whether they be big players or small, innovative or old-fashioned, with our first conversation with the CEO of Gailey Foods. We spent a great deal of time when I first became um, president and being able to establish that vision. And the board and membership made it clear that while certainly pleased with the history of Gailey Foods and where we got into, we also wanted to be able to create a different and stronger vision about what we wanted to be able to do. And it was certainly about growth. And change they have. With Michael Barrett at the helm, they've invested hundreds of millions of dollars, developed partnerships with other dairy co-ops, made multiple acquisitions, started selling a non-dairy product, moved sales from 560 million a year to 840 million last year, and they do not seem to be slowing down. It's our first Top of the Food Chain, and it's next time on Food Bubble. This episode of Food Bubble was produced by Jess Nicholson. We also get help from Jess Campbell and Ashley Ferrero. It's put together here at Fresh Air Media. Of course, we want to hear your thoughts, ideas, and questions on this episode and others. You can always reach out to us via social media. My handle on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram is Fresh Air Farmer. 
We've also added a new feature when you can send along your thoughts through an audio message. The link to that is in the show notes and works really well for us to include those ideas and those comments you have right into future episodes. We also like to include the ratings and reviews you leave for us in your podcast app, so make sure to do that, and we'll aim to get them into the show as well. That's it for this week. We'll be back to talk food soon.